0: Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we'll have a conversation with Kali Rabai, an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, about the toxic legacy of the war in Iraq and the underlying reasons for the high rates of birth defects in the city of Fallujah. Later in the program, we'll speak with documentary filmmaker Jeff Kaufman, about his latest film, titled Nasrin, which chronicles the life and work of jailed, prominent Iranian human rights lawyer, Nasrin Soutoudeh. Stay with us. For many, the war in Iraq is over. But for Iraqis, decades of wars... Backbreaking economic sanctions and the catastrophic 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq have left a generation of Iraqis coping with long term health and environment problems, including cancers, increased miscarriages, and horrific birth defects in newborns. Fallujah in Anbar province has been described as the city with the highest rates of birth defects in the world higher even than the Hiroshima after the US dropped a nuclear bomb on the city in 1945. In her new piece in the Middle East Research and Information Project Journal, our guest Kali Rabai argues that in Iraq, birth defects are a visible embodiment of the enduring toxic legacy of war for the environment and for generations to come. Professor Robai is a cultural anthropologist who studies the materiality of structural violence, especially ecological arrangements between living and non-living
1: things. I think that one of the most important things that's happening in Fallujah is that doctors like Samira Alani and her colleagues are doing a really good job of documentation. That doesn't mean that Fallujah is the only place that's seeing cancer and birth defects and other health-related problems connected to war, but it does mean that the archive is the strongest there. Fallujah, yes, may be known as a city with birth defects or um, in in some vernacular, the ground zero of the war on terror. Fallujah faced heavy bombardment in 2004 and 2008, and then subsequent bombing and shelling 2012, 2014. So it's a city that has seen a lot of military violence, and it's also a city that has faced Uh, higher levels of disenfranchisement and political abandonment in various periods in recent history. It's a big city. It sees a lot of people. The hospitals see a lot of patients. And the most recent military intervention in Iraq by the United States has included significant waste abandonment, which includes Fallujah and areas surrounding it. So everything from burn pits where things are discarded and burned into the air, leaving dioxins for children and adults to breathe, to um, discarded vehicles and excess weapons. Mm. The entire Iraq landscape has been transformed by military violence in one way or another. And Fallujah is what some people call a hot spot for that military violence that's in a way a canary in the coal mine for other cities and other communities in the world. There have been several studies looking
0: into high rate of birth defects in Fallujah. What do these studies show and what are they finding in children's bodies as well as the mothers and the fathers that can cause these horrific birth defects, including congenital heart diseases, missing limbs, spinal deformities,
1: just to name a few. Good question. And I'll start by just saying that the underlying cause of any individual birth defect is syndemic, meaning it's not necessarily one thing, but a collision of lots of different causes. So rather than strontium or depleted uranium as a single objective cause, it's more the phenomenon of war, the phenomenon of extractive industry and the various toxins that come together to create cancers, birth defects, and other health-related illnesses. Dr. Mozgan Savabias Fahani, who's at, um, I think, University of Michigan, has done a really great job presenting in articles and YouTube videos, succinct summaries of the correlation between proximity to heavy bombardment and birth defects. And heavy bombardment, in this case, doesn't just mean bombs falling from the sky, but close proximity to burn pits, refineries, other kinds of toxic inundations that we can call bombardments. And one of the issues with looking at the endemic cause of health anomalies is that you have to know what to test for to find it. So a lot of different studies have shown a lot of different toxins in, in children's bodies, many of which are heavy metals of various kinds. And what we're finding in some is that those children whose parents and siblings were living closely to heavy bombardment for at least the entirety of their younger years are likely to then have series of birth defects, spontaneous abortion, difficulty conceiving, a variety of fertility problems. Birth defects in a way are a symbol of the broader health conditions that they represent. United States
0: launched 800 cruise missiles within the first 48 hours of the invasion in March of 2003. More than double the number of missiles launched in the entire Persian Gulf War. Between 2002 and 2005 alone, U.S. expanded six billion bullets, roughly 200,000 to 300,000 bullets per individual killed in Iraq. And the number of shells full of lead, mercury does not include larger ordinances and other metal remnants from after 2005 or from previous wars, as you write, Iraq-Iran War, the first Persian Gulf War, the sanctions era, the 2003 occupation, which instigated decades of militia warfare. And you write, the most recent military intervention in Iraq was accompanied by unprecedented waste abandonment And waste burning, discarded vehicles, excess weapons, discarded clothing, and much more were left in Iraq's land, air, and water. So this basically points to a bigger question, and that is the acute public health crisis in Iraq, and more specifically in Fallujah, given the high rates of congenital malformations. So what is in place to reduce the risk? Are there certain measures in place to identify if a woman is at risk for having a baby with certain birth defects? Because abortion is illegal. And I was reading about a case in Fallujah where the parents had to ask religious authorities to grant them permission for abortion.
1: Yes, that's right. Well, I know that there are some predictors of birth defects. One of the things that has been so alarming for many of the women that I live and and work with is that family may have a history of birth defects, that's a different thing, but that for a lot of women who have had no history of children with birth defects or of repeated spontaneous abortion or failing to carry to term, they suddenly started noticing this pattern after 2003, 2004, 2005, And it's created quite a challenging situation for women who want to conceive and bear children, who sometimes have repeated miscarriages and repeated non-viable pregnancies, who don't want to have to live through the physical and emotional ordeal of constantly repeating this experience. And so in some cases, doctors have advised women or couples to stop conceiving children, which as you can imagine, has major social consequences. I talked to several families who had one of, the, one of the cultural influences of this phenomenon is that there were some families who had one of the women, maybe an older sister, who was having children with birth defects, and then her younger sister was not able to marry because the stigma or the concern that she too might not be able to bear healthy children influenced her ability to find a partner and marry. So there are lots of rippling effects that are impacting women in a very complicated way, not the least of which is the sad and terrible burden of giving birth to children who can't survive or who live very painful and short lives.
0: 6,000 children are born each year, from what I've read, in Fallujah. What is the percentage of birth defects in
1: Fallujah? Well, I will tell you that I don't know and I don't think anyone knows. And here's why. When I look at the statistics that are documented, and I look at the levels of displacement and destruction to knowledge-producing infrastructures like hospitals, the assassination of doctors, the displacement of families, all of the estimates seem incredibly low to me. I had a very surprising anecdotal experience when I was actually visiting a friend in a refugee camp on the border of Kirkuk, back in 2015, and many of the people in that camp had fled from near Fallujah, villages Mm. outside of Fallujah, and several of the families that I met with had lined up their children to show that of their 10, 15, eight children, there was a distinct line. For children born after a certain date, it became physically apparent just by looking at children's bodies that there was something that had happened historically to transform the possibility of children to be born fully healthy. So there was a distinct line, you know, and there might be a lineup of eight or ten children, and those born before 2004 or 2005 had no visible anomalies. And those born after were almost more than 50% of who I saw had visible which doesn't necessarily count internal issues, visible medical problems, not all of which are necessarily birth defects. Some of them were related to neurotoxins or other kinds of medical issues. So these are compounded syndemic medical problems that are not only the cause of chemical toxins, but the destruction of medical infrastructure, the destruction of knowledge producing infrastructure and lack of access to healthcare. And all of those combined to create a condition in which many people are having children with birth defects that go unreported. Many people have medical problems that go untreated. So no matter what number we arrive at, we can anticipate that it's a chronic underestimation. In
0: 2018, for example, 118,000 people in Basra ended up in the hospital because of poor water quality. So that also says something about how these problems can be compounded over time. As time passes, it becomes even more difficult to identify what is causing these illnesses or these congenital malfunctions in babies specifically.
1: That's absolutely true. I know that Zainab Saleh just recently published a piece in Cost of War about Mm -hmm. the human cost of US intervention in Iraq. And she outlines everything from destroyed medical infrastructure to chemical saturation and reminds us that, for example, it was during the sanctions, many people I talk to say the sanctions were a war too, that doctors had to watch children suffocate from asthma because inhalers were inaccessible in the 90s. And then we have a journalist, Rosina Ali, who published an article in Foreign Affairs recently documenting how Iraq is handling COVID. This is a country that has hospital beds and 0.8 physicians per 1,000 people. And that's a direct result of war in which hundreds of doctors were assassinated, hospitals were shelled and rebuilding efforts have been stayed by corruption and imperial interest. So we have to be thinking about the ways that birth defects while captivating, especially in the imaginaries of an international community are actually just a pointer to the much broader incidences of poor sanitation, cancer, and other environmental conditions that have produced a lot of serious health concerns that Iraqi people are living with on a daily basis. And the images capture people's attention. They do. They're not only captivating in a symbolic way, they also capture the attention of people who have experienced what they call genocide, people who feel that they have been killed because of who they are, who've been written out of public discourse as terrorists, who have been orientalized. Earlier in my research, I would mention the incidences of birth defects. And one of the most common flippant phrases, especially among less uh, educated white Americans in the academy, was, well, don't they marry their cousins there? So there's a strong urge, especially in the English-speaking world, to try and naturalize or indigenize the health consequences of what is clearly a heavy military bombardment that has lasted for decades and couldn't possibly not cause major long-term medical concerns. So one of the ways that the ecology or the environment gets written into the story of war is to naturalize and diffuse responsibility that otherwise might be leveraged for international accountability. And birth defects are a powerful, visible indicator that something is wrong. If you look at three episodes,
0: the sanctions, the Persian Gulf War, and the invasion and occupation of Iraq in 2003, have there been studies looking at each of these episodes and their
1: impacts on children's health? So there have been epidemiological studies looking at the long-term environmental effects of war. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of continuity in these studies, in part because of the way that knowledge-producing people and knowledge-producing institutions have been destroyed. But there was a doctor in Baghdad who did a small study based on the hunch that depleted uranium was the cause of medical problems back in the 90s, right after the Gulf War did not find convincing results from that study and stashed the data. Then after 2003, resumed that study and found that there was a higher rate of depleted uranium. And so some of the studies that maybe don't show consistency or continuity are the most valuable. And those are sadly not archived in a unified way because institutions have been bombed, documents have been displaced, and the people who made them have been displaced as well.
0: Depleted uranium, you're right, is one of the most widely discussed contaminants in relation to birth defects, and the World Health Organization released a report in 2003 entitled Potential Impact of Conflict on Health in Iraq, which suggested that depleted uranium might be related to reports of increased cancer, birth defect, reproductive health problems, and renal diseases in the Iraqi population since 2003.
1: That's right. Part of the reason that depleted uranium is so suspected is that there is evidence it was used and because it's illegal. But there are so many multiple causes. My one concern with the link between depleted uranium and the campaign to ban depleted uranium is that it may have us overlooking the endemic causes of lead and mercury and other less, less anomalous heavy metals that we might find in our daily lives, but that are found in people's lives at a high concentration and yeah. in the wrong locations during war.
0: There is a long it's... list of toxins and chemicals, white phosphorus, arsenic, lead, mercury, thorium, dioxin, right. which is a carcinogenic. It's a cancer causing chemical that we're seeing the impacts of it in Louisiana, actually, in what has been described and called as Cancer Alley.
1: That's right. First of all, depleted uranium is used because it's heavy. Mm. And we have to think about why these things are appearing. Bombs and bullets are meant to kill people, Mm. and they're meant to kill people in a way that is kinetic, which means the heavier the metal, the better so too the heavier the metal the more carcinogenic we see a parallel there and one of the reasons depleted uranium is the focal point is that it's often only seen in places of war it's associated with war but lead mercury cadmium these are all things that are pulled out of the ground and Mm -hmm. dissipated in among poor and black and brown communities all over the world so when we hold the deployers of heavy metals accountable, we are wise to look at the transnational connections and the forms of transnational mobilization that may make accountability possible. So that communities, for example, in Cancer Alley in Louisiana and communities in Fallujah and veterans who were exposed all have a common interest in stopping the distribution of these materials and managing the cleanup that is absolutely necessary in the wake of the violence that both extractive industry and extractive war have wreaked ecologies all over the world.
0: To continue what you're saying, about 450,000 people live in Fallujah, half of whom live in the city. And according to official estimation, but there are only two hospitals, one of which is the teaching hospital, which accommodates only 200 beds to receive all types of cases. Most baby deliveries were carried out in this hospital until the completion of second women's hospital in 2012, which has 11 male and female pediatrician doctors and 12 doctors specializing in gynecological diseases, as well as one maternal and one fetal doctor so the problems in Iraq because of the invasion on occupation of Iraq and years and years of war and sanction has been compounded and 74 percent of Fallujah was destroyed.
1: That's right and uh, in addition to the kind of uh, infrastructural damage we have to think about the simple question of if, if a bomb lands on a building what happens to the pieces of the bomb, and what happens to the pieces of the building, and what children play in that rubble, and what families breathe the air, and what happens to the water, and what happens to the water supply. So even just looking at one incidence of kinetic violence, when something is broken or torn apart, we see that the repeated heavy bombardment creates conditions that couldn't possibly do anything but cause major health issues. From a hospital perspective, you've just outlined ways that hospitals are sparse, medical staff is rare. From a patient perspective, we can also think about how many people have had to flee Their normal infrastructure, I mean, any of us who have had to leave our home even for a small period of time have experienced the difficulties of accessing medication, advocacy, support, medical care. Displacement is a huge component of life for Iraqis who have been displaced by war repeatedly. And then in addition to that, we're seeing a major plummet in education levels and literacy rates, which directly impacts people's access to health care. Many of the women that I worked with would have given birth to children in hospitals except that they were displaced or they were afraid or they couldn't transport themselves. And so more and more children are going undocumented and and labor is going undocumented and people are being put at greater and greater health risk. We also have to remember that Doctors themselves are not necessarily able to regularly access their source of employment. I've interacted for decades with doctors working in and out of Fallujah, and there are periods of time when they have to flee to Baghdad or other places, and they're not actually able to do their work. Doctors were one of the most targeted groups of people right after 2003, and many of them fled the country altogether. Others were killed, and very few remain.
0: You write beyond deliberate spatial and social transformations, chemical pollution also shapes Iraq's war ecologies. Can you elaborate on that a bit?
1: Sure. One of the components of my research is to understand how violence was spatialized in Iraq. And what that means is looking at ways that counterinsurgency manuals and counterterrorism training has created conditions where the environment is deployed as one of the multipliers of force uh, against insurgency. Fallujah is quite famous for an insurgent resistance to the U.S. invasion in, in 2003, but other parts of Iraq as well. So one example, a quote by a U.S. Army veteran in an army blog describes concrete, which may not be sexy, he says, but is one of the most critical components of modern day warfare. What he's describing is the intimate role that T-walls or cement walling practices played in creating divisions among neighborhoods in big cities like Baghdad or Fallujah, actually inducing the kind of sectarian violence that we're seeing play out today. This was a form of spatial control, deliberate manipulation of the environment that had long term consequences, perhaps unanticipated by the people who were implementing it. Another example is the way that that economies were restructured and therefore changed the landscape. So, for example, a lot of the people that I worked with were not from cities, were from rural areas outside of Fallujah. And they were farmers, small-time farmers, some of them. And they described that the restructuring, you know, Order 81 is the most famous, the restructuring of Iraq's agricultural economy changed their interaction with their land, whether or not they could keep farming, whether or not they could access their land, save their seeds, sell their seeds in a market. It created uh, an open market that had been closed before meaning that farmers were not able to compete with international trade and were then no longer able to sell their food. Well, this completely changed the landscape in a way that maybe was or wasn't anticipated in the war effort, the U.S. war effort, but did restructure the physical environment and the ecology of Iraq.
0: And all the bombs that U.S. dropped on Iraq and other ordinances, it has polluted the air the water, and the food people eat. You lived and worked with internally displaced farming families from Anbar province in 2014 and 2015. You witnessed plant, crops, and livestock with malformed parts or tumorous growth? Yes,
1: absolutely. One of the things that was most interesting about the way that people showed me where military violence had leaked into their ecologies, was not only in pointing to destroyed infrastructure, like broken water systems or failed sanitation systems, but also to how the soil had been changed. Soil had been salinated or dried out in part by neglect and in part by decades of harm but also some of the plant parts would be multiple. For example, I saw lots of wheat heads that were double or triple when they're Mm -hmm. normally single. There were certainly many pictures that people showed me and I did witness a few incidences of goats or other livestock with tumor growths. I saw pictures of goats with multiple limbs, but I also saw children with many physical anomalies. They conjured the feeling of the nuclear even if they are not necessarily directly related to nuclear radiation. This is just criminal. It actually is criminal. It's against international law to use depleted uranium. It's against international law to use white phosphorus. It's against international law to strike a preemptive war. These are actually war crimes. And I think that one of the reasons birth defects are such a go-to archive of harm is that they point to the possibility of these war crimes in ways that other kinds of harm don't. Cancer doesn't necessarily have the same implicating power in popular discourse. Similarly, I think studies about depleted uranium, which are widely contested, are better supported by the incidence of birth defects. So there is something going on in international discourse as well as the Iraqi people are trying to both repair their environments and their bodies from heavy bombardment, military bombardment, but also the possibility for recourse in the long run. Because when we say this is criminal, we're actually referencing a body of law that was perpetually violated by U.S. and U.S.-trained military groups. We have to remember that Fallujah Hospital, it's illegal to bomb hospitals, and it has faced several incidences of bombing and shelling which are also in violation of international law. And while I'm not entirely convinced that any form of war, legal or otherwise, is valuable in the world, the fact that there are legal frameworks that regulate the kinds of violence that are allowed to be practiced gives space for legal recourse. Professor
0: Robay is a cultural anthropologist studying the materiality of structural violence, especially ecological arrangements between living and non-living things. You can read her recent piece titled On the Birth Defects and the Toxic Legacy of War in Iraq at merip.org. We will also link to the article on Bomina's page at kpfa.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. speak with documentary filmmaker Jeff Kaufman about his documentary film Nasrin which gives an intimate view of imprisoned prominent Iranian human rights lawyer Nasrin Sutude Iranian human rights lawyer and women's rights activist Nasrin Soutoudeh was arrested in June 2018 for representing women who publicly protest Iran's mandatory hijab law, and she was sentenced to 38 years in prison plus 148 lashes. She recently ended her 45 days hunger strike to protest poor health conditions and the risk of COVID-19 in Iranian prisons, and to demand the release of all political prisoners. In his new documentary film Nasrin, filmmaker Jeff Kaufman takes the viewer inside Sutudeh's life and her long history of activism, as well as her legal work fighting for the rights of women, abused children, LGBT prisoners, religious minorities, journalists and artists, and all those facing the death penalty in Iran. Here is a clip from Nasrin. Nasrin Sotoudeh is
1: a prominent
0: lawyer in
2: Iran who's been fighting for children's rights, women's rights, and human rights. She is one of the bravest voices in Iran.
1: She took on cases that other lawyers were too afraid to take on. We've seen Nasrin Sotoudeh jailed for defending human rights.
2: It has cost her and her young family a lot. Protesting against the law, which forces Iranian women
0: to wear the hijab. The country's most prominent Human rights activists and a voice for the voiceless. I had been in Iran maybe a week and I knew how to toe the line as a woman. And then I meet Nasrin so today, who doesn't toe the line at all. That was a clip from the documentary film Nasreen about the life and vital work of prominent imprisoned Iranian human rights lawyer Nasrin Sotudeh. I spoke with Jeff Kaufman about his documentary and I started by asking him why he decided to make this film.
2: Human rights have always been important to me. And uh, when I had a radio show for years, I would, as often as possible, use it as a vehicle to not only discuss human rights uh, around the world, but also just to learn more myself. And when I started making documentaries, I was sometimes doing commercial work that got my kids through college, but I kept trying to think of how I could connect it to what I really care about. And I was actually working for a TV series that was perhaps less than noble, but I reached out to someone who said, Oh, you should do a film about my friend who just got arrested and is being held in Iran. And I spoke to the person who owned that production company, and they said, All right, we'll pay for that. And It led to, by a strange chain of events that may or may not have a connection to a higher power, a series of films about Iran. And one of the things that led to me was a deeper and deeper appreciation of the Iranian people and the Iranian culture. We uh, shouldn't judge a country by its leader. <laughs> and our many conversations with Nazarene Suuta before she was arrested, we'd often say, Nazarene, you know I'm sorry about Donald Trump. Don't judge us for Donald Trump." And the same goes in both directions. So the most recent film I had done, well, actually, I did a film about eight years ago with Amnesty International about the persecution of the Baha'i faith in Iran. And uh, that's a horrendous story where people of the Baha'i faith, which is an entirely peaceful faith that believes in a global unity, are just brutally persecuted in Iran. More recently, we did a film for Time magazine in March about the history of the women's rights movement in Iran. But Education Under Fire really gave me appreciation of Muslim neighbors and friends who would put themselves at great risk for their Baha'i neighbors and friends to help them out. Sometimes the only way that a Baha'i family could own a store was if a Muslim neighbor would open the store in their name. And, you know, those people were putting themselves at risk of imprisonment and worse. Before
0: embarking on this film and your short films about persecution of Baha'is, what did you do to learn more about Iran, its people, its history? What
2: was that learning process for you like? It's a learning process that I encourage for others as well. I mean, I read a lot of books and I got to know a lot of people. And there's mm-hmm. one thing even about reading a book or seeing a documentary or watching a news story, and there's a different thing about sitting down over a good Persian meal and talking to people about their experiences. And also, it's great to have a good Persian meal by itself. <laughs> it's very moving to have all those lives add up to a picture that you hadn't seen before.
0: Because I think it's really important that in the beginning you differentiated between the Iranian people and the government, because very often in the Western media specifically, these lines are completely blurred. And I think that was really refreshing to see that you are providing a more complex and nuanced representation of Iran. Because of your 2011 short film about the persecution of Baha'is in Iran, of course you could not travel to the country. Therefore, making this documentary required assistance by locals who at times were holding the camera shooting footages in your absence. Can you talk about the difficulties associated with such a setup and the intricate uh, logistics of making a clandestine film when the film crew is operating in a very, very dangerous environment created by an authoritarian state?
2: When we did the 2011 film about the Baha'i faith in Iran, they had this amazing system where I could communicate with a camera person or a crew and say, oh, there's a closed Baha'i school on this street. Can you tilt down from the sky at dusk and then push into the lock that's on the front door? And two days later, I'd get that shot. It was just kind of amazing. I reached out to all those people for this project and as wonderful as they were, it was just too scary a time for them to put themselves at risk to shoot this film. When did you
0: start? It took you four years to make this film.
2: Give or take. We started in mid-2016. We reached out to Nazarene around that. But through Nazarene and through some others, we found some amazing people who were talented camera people, who were willing to follow Nazrin around and who Nazrin trusted. The trust issue is, is huge. And you know, obviously if I had shown up in Iran with a four person American crew, we wouldn't have gotten anything anyway. The footage and the access is, I think, really remarkable. I don't have never seen it before, where Nazarene is walking into a modern art gallery or (laughs) into a bookstore or into a theater that looks like it's Greenwich Village. That both reflects her fascination in the arts, but also the fact that uh, we could go places that other people haven't gone before. Those crews uh, have to stay anonymous, but I I will say that although none of them have been hassled because of the film itself, you know, obviously Nazarene is in prison. One of the camera people had to flee the country. And if you remember, there's a sequence when Nazrin was in prison in 2010 through 13, where she was in the courthouse and she came out of the courthouse and saw her husband for the first time. And there's a series of about 18 photos that are just amazing where she sees Reza, her husband, or she smiles and her hands are handcuffed and she puts her hands around his neck and they yeah. embrace. The woman who took those pictures was arrested two weeks ago. It shows you the risk that people put themselves at. And, and
0: so they were arrested
2: because of? Not, taking those not because of the film. That woman actually had gone to a women in politics conference and apparently that got her in trouble. And she had a history of supporting human rights and women's rights in the past. So it wasn't for the film, but it shows, again, the climate of fear.
0: But some of your crew members, at any point during the making of this documentary, were they in danger or did they think that their movement is being monitored or... They were questions about what they were doing. Did they get that? Or it was so secretive that nothing happened during the filming?
2: Well, it wasn't that secretive in that Nazarene was the leading human rights activist in Iran at the time. And uh, she had someone with the camera walking around with her. That person tried to be as discreet as possible, sometimes hiding in the back seat, sometimes hiding in the front seat, but sometimes boldly walking down the street with Nazreen. Yeah, they put themselves at risk and they knew it. And you know, whenever you, you do a film, you have a lot more footage than you can use. And there were conversations with the camera people and Nazarene about the risks that they were both under. But the camera people believed in the cause as much as Nazarene, and this is something they wanted to do.
0: You began making Nasreen in 2016. Tell us what the process is like when you are thousands of miles away from the location of the film. As a filmmaker, it should be really difficult as a documentary filmmaker. I think it's one of the most difficult decisions that you make. And you are relying on the footage shot by others. What are the similarities and the similarities when you compare it to making a documentary based on archival footage, for example, versus original footage?
2: First of all, I work with my uh, wife and producing partner, Marsha Ross. So uh, when I say I, I mean we or vice versa. But we did a film about uh, the influence of swing jazz and swing music in the 1930s in Harlem on the country and how that cracked open the racial barrier in a lot of different ways. It was a profile of Chick Webb and Ella Fitzgerald, who were obviously dead. So that was both interviews with people who were still alive, but all archival footage. And so that's one way of telling a story. It's a detective process. It's finding stuff that's no one ever seen before, and then hopefully having a good story sense so that you know how to lock it all together. We've also done unfolding films. like We did a film about the women who really launched the whole marriage equality movement. Remarkable unsung woman who changed the world for thousands, millions of people. Uh, And that was a combination of archival and and, and contemporary. We did a film in Haiti uh, about this priest who was a champion of women's rights. And that, again, was things unfolding around you. It's obviously different in Iran. But some of the same principles apply. First of all, hopefully, for us, we have a strong vision of what we hope the film will be. And in this case, it was many of the things you mentioned, a profile of Nazarene, but through Nazarene, a profile of a community of activists working together, most of them women, and also remarkably for some people in the West, their wonderfully supportive husbands, and then also an entree into Iranian life and culture. And in this case, we'd be in touch with Nazarene about things we'd hope that they could shoot, hope that they could film, encourage as much as possible. And then there'd be that surprise element too. And There was a whole chain of getting the footage that I can't go into out of Iran. And it was quite an amazing experience. Yeah, that was
0: actually my next question. How did you get the footage?
2: I can't really say, except that actually there were several different methods, depending on what phase of the project we were in. But it is a remarkable experience to start watching through it and go, oh, my goodness. Especially sometimes, like you may recall that there's a a sequence where uh, Nesrine is talking about the production when she was in prison of Ariel Dorfman's play Death of mm-hmm, a Maiden. Mm-hmm. That actually came like, the two pieces came like a year and a half apart. And so it's only after the second group came, I thought, oh my goodness, we could tell the story.
0: Through the course of this film, we get a glimpse of her life and learn about her professional life and her activism in wide range of issues. Outside of Iran, she's best known as a woman's rights activist, a prominent human rights lawyer. But as a lawyer, the film does a fantastic job in breaking down what she actually has done. Uh, She started her professional life as a lawyer in 2003, I believe. And she has represented cases ranging from abused children, death penalty cases, a particular case pertaining to religious minority rights, and also, of course, women's rights cases, the latest case being uh, representing a young woman who was jailed after she protested against mandatory hijab, and she succeeded to get her out on bail. Can you talk about her life, why she became such a passionate advocate for justice. And if you can give us a brief overview of one of the cases that she worked on.
2: Let me just, of course, state that in June of 2018, while we were filming, Nazwine was again arrested. She had already served three years in prison. She's in prison right now. Just yesterday, as of this recording, she was transferred from Evin prison, which is one of the worst prisons in the world, to an even worse prison in Garshak, uh, Iran. And we're all deeply worried about her. Yeah, so. and
0: she was supposed to be transferred to a hospital because she has heart problem. But her husband said she was instead transferred to Qarchak, which is 30 kilometers from Tehran.
2: Yeah, the resident's her husband, and he's as amazing as Nazarene. And he himself was arrested in 2019. He has a six-year sentence hanging over his head, but he won't let it silence him. Tension. And her daughter
0: was arrested, by the way, as you know. Her daughter, 20-year-old daughter, was arrested back in August. And then she was released on bail.
2: Yeah. In August, uh, Meriva, their 20-year-old daughter, four policemen came to their door at like five Mm -hmm. o'clock in the morning and said, we're taking Meriva away. Reza said, no, you can't do that. He escorted her to Avine prison. They apparently were upset. They said she, quote unquote, insulted a prison guard last time she visited her mother. But it's obviously a pretext to harass and intimidate Nazarene and Reza. Meriva was just incredibly brave throughout the whole process. Reza was able to get her out on bail after a five-hour interrogation. And the threat still hangs over Meriva as mm-hmm. well. These are incredible people. You mentioned that Nasrin has had a wide range of issues. We did a film that involved John Lewis, the great John Lewis. And one of the things I love about John Lewis is that he saw that his struggle for civil rights reflected a broader range of needs for people of all backgrounds. So he was a champion of LGBTQ rights, of women's rights. He saw that we're all linked that way. And Nazarene is very much the same way, something I adore about her, but that also means that she has fought legal battles on lots of different cases. I mean, one of the things the film shows, we've got this amazing footage which has since disappeared from its original source of Nazarene fighting for Nobel Peace Prize uh, laureate Sharon Abadi in Tehran's revolutionary court and going up against a judge and a prosecutor who was horrendous and staring them down. She's a tough person. And there's a whole series of battles from uh, a child abuse case at the beginning. That was so
0: heartbreaking.
2: Yeah. Yeah. She was saying that a young child and a mother of a young child has no rights uh, when confronting an abusive father. But, you know, Nazarene really believes in the use of the law and the fact that it's not just enough to get someone off. It's important to change the law so society changes.
0: It was really amazing to see her in very difficult conversations that she had. Specifically, I'm talking about the case where she represented the Baha'i family. The Yeah. And when she was talking to the father, I believe, of the murderers, she was still so kind and so soft-spoken. I thought that was such an interesting and such a difficult, I'm sure, for her conversation to have.
2: I would phrase it a little bit differently, not to Mm -hmm. disagree. She was talking to the father of two men who murdered a Baha'i person just because of his faith, and then who got off like two months later. He was trying to get some compensation and some acknowledgement for the family. Yes, she was kind and soft-spoken, but I think she can be very calculating, and she's smart enough to know that's the way to get her way. I think it's 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 both.
0: So it was uh, it was a conscious decision to do that.
2: She's pretty damn smart. <laughs>
0: Did she do all this work pro bono?
2: She does much of the work pro bono, which is amazing. There's a scene, you know, with the great filmmaker Jafar Panahi, one of the world's best directors writers who actually featured her in one of his films, Taxi. He has a ban on traveling out of the country and supposedly a ban on making more films, but he keeps doing it. And he was trying to get to Cannes for his new film, Three Faces. And at one point he says, now, Miss Sudede, you know, I'm going to pay you for this. I know you always do this for no pay, but I'm going to pay you. It's just, no, 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 you don't have to pay me. So she uh, helps take care of her family and does what she can, but she does a lot of the service for free.
0: I don't remember hearing that conversation, but At any point, did she say why she decided to stay and work in Iran in spite of living with the threat of being jailed? She was jailed in 2010. She's now imprisoned, 38 years, 148 lashes. And being separated from her family, her husband was arrested. As you said, her 20-year-old daughter was arrested at her home. Why did she decide to stay?
2: She could leave. She could have left many times. But she believes in bringing the fight to the authorities in the most effective way possible, and that means staying in Iran, and that means even being in prison, or that means going on a 46-day hunger strike. She feels she has a mission, and the mission has to be done in Iran. Her husband could have taken the children and left and been in security, but Reza also shares that vision. So we're, we're in a country now that has been divided horrendously, and lots of times you, you think you want to leave because it's just so awful. But we have to stay because if we leave, who can carry things forward? And a lot is on Nazarene. You know, Nazarene has uh, many times been called the Nelson Mandela of Iran. And I think that's a good description of who she is and what her mission and potential is.
0: What has stood out for you in the course of making this film? What do you think you accomplished with this film?
2: Yeah, I think that some of that connects to what you're saying as far as Nazarene staying or leaving. She says several times in the film and beyond the film, how important it is not to be made silent. We were just talking to Reza, her husband, a couple of days ago, and he was saying that really what the authorities want now is for Nazarene just to be quiet, to go away, to be forgotten. And Nazarene says, I love this quote, she says, we must not let our children inherit silence. Again, going back to this country, people would judge this horrible time of the last couple of years. 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now. And I think those who stood up and said something and opposed it and marched, that will mean something. For Nazreen, keeping her voice as loud, as amplified, as clear, and direct as possible is a big mission of this film. I mean, we hope that the film will connect people to Iran in a way they haven't felt before. Mm -hmm. Uh, We hope that um, it'll help connect people to the importance of human rights in a really personal way. We hope that it will push things forward in this country and in Iran. But also, I was mentioning that uh, hunger strike that Nazrin had, there she was, she was in prison, uh, seeing the health conditions in Iran prisons. And they thought she had no voice. And by being on a hunger strike for 46 days, she got the world to pay attention. That's a lot of power from one person. And we want to keep that power going. And keep pushing on the regime to free Nazarene and to recognize the rights of others like her.
0: I asked a few friends why they liked the film. And uh, one said, she seems to be a strong person and so genuine at the same time. Her husband seems to be very sweet and supportive. And another friend wrote, we get a chance to have a closer look at her personality. She seems very sweet, dedicated, determined, and genuine.
2: Yes. And she could knock a brick wall down if she wanted to. Marsha Ross, our producer, has often said that she feels that Reza and Nazarene's husband is the Marty Ginsburg to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, someone who is just as smart and just as dedicated and just as passionate, but is loves his wife and adores his wife and is happy to be there to support her in whatever way possible. They're a great combination. We've had so many conversations with them, and there is that sweetness and kindness But don't underestimate how strong they are, because they're Mm -hmm. tough.
0: I mean, Nasrin Nasutadeh has been getting worldwide attention, international law associations, Pan America, European parliaments. She has been awarded a number of prizes for her work, for her bravery. What's been the reaction to your film Inside Iran?
2: Well... The film was just released at the beginning of this month, and there's a whole series of events that will take place over the next few months that will both advance the film and Nazarene's cause. It's coming up at uh, Doc NYC uh, soon, and it'll be playing at the European Parliament and other places like that. It's been translated into Farsi, and there's a process that will make it widely available in Iran, but that hasn't quite happened yet. So, we're looking forward to those results. And, you know, Nazarene and everyone else in the film is uh, waiting for that to happen. There's also, by the way, since you mentioned Pan America, which is one of our great allies in this effort, if you go to our website, which is NazareneFilm.com, you can sign a Pan America petition calling for Nazarene's release. And it's just one of many ways where people can not just watch the film, but get involved and advocate on her behalf.
0: That's what actually my last question was in terms of what do you want people to come
2: away with after watching this film? What should they do? Well, one thing they should do if they are inspired by the idea of people risking a lot for human rights and civil rights and women's rights in their country is to apply it to our country as well and to vote Mm -hmm. in November and to make sure that we have, can I be to this political, (laughs) it's KPFA? I think we, we need uh, an administration that will close Guantanamo, that will stand for human rights, that will uh, say that peaceful protests in America is what this country is built on, not something that we should push back on. And also, by the way, another lesson from Nazarene, because the women's rights movement in Iran has had a great ebb and flow, and it never stops, to realize that the rights we fight for in this country can slip away, and we have to be exactly. ever vigilant. You know, that's what exactly. a lesson from Nazarene. So, yeah, I would say get involved domestically. And then there are a lot of um, a number of human rights groups that are doing remarkable work. Pan America, Amnesty International, other groups that make a difference. I was just talking to Nazarene's husband, Reza, two days ago and talking about what leverage do we have? And he said the most important thing is just keeping the public pressure up and being as loud as we can. So you can make a difference. They pay attention.
0: Why did she agree to do this film? Why did she agree for you to make a film about her life, showing really intimate moments of her life to a global audience?
2: I will say that throughout the filmmaking, we said to Nazreen on multiple occasions, Nazreen, if you feel this film is putting you at any risk, we'll stop now. You know, We believe in what we're doing, but we'll stop now if you think it's putting you at danger. And she would always say, no, I know exactly what I'm getting into. I want to do this. It's important. And everybody that you saw in the film, on camera and behind the camera, signed a release so that they could participate. They knew what they were getting into as well. I think Nasreen is just a very savvy person. You know, she knows that um, marching and legal work and public advocacy is important. But the more people who hear that story and understand, the better. And I think we shared at the very beginning with nazrin our vision to not just do a hagography, not just do like, you know, a pleasant piece about someone who is noble, but try to show them as a real person and really, really try to show how interesting society and, and culture is in Iran. And, you know, we we're on the same page right away. So I think it was all those, but I must say it's taken us on an amazing journey that's way beyond the film itself.
0: Jeff Kaufman is director, producer, and writer for the new documentary Nasreen. To learn more about this documentary and how to watch it, please visit NasreenFilm.com. That's N-A-S-R-I-N-Film.com. we we'll link to this website on Vomina's page at kpfa.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Radio at gmail.com.